Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in higher education will obviously affect college admissions, but it's also getting the attention of employers. Before the decision, dozens of companies, including California-based corporations like Apple, Google, Airbnb, and Uber, insisted they were committed to diversity, saying it's necessary to compete in a global marketplace. But with conservative groups promising to redouble legal efforts to stop corporate DEI programs, the legal landscape has shifted, and this hour we'll delve into how the end of affirmative action could affect hiring and workplace diversity. That's next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. Well, last month, the U.S. Supreme Court put a dagger into the heart of affirmative action programs in higher education, saying that basing college admissions on race or ethnicity violated the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution. Well, now many employers are taking notice. They rely on colleges and universities to send them diverse applicants qualified for a wide range of jobs. And with conservative legal groups stepping up their scrutiny of workplace hiring practices, employers are reassessing the legal landscape, at least some are. So this hour, we're going to explore how the Supreme Court's decision ending affirmative action could affect the applicant pool, hiring, and DEI programs that many companies have embraced. Joining us, Noam Scheiber. He's a reporter covering workers and the workplace for The New York Times. Noam Scheiber, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Also joining us, Nicole Sanchez. She is founder and CEO of Via Consulting. They advise tech and media companies on issues related to diversity and culture. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And also with us, Richard Thompson Ford is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. Professor Ford, good to have you as well. Thanks for having me. Let me begin with you, Noam. Um, This ruling, of course, was about colleges and universities, higher education. Why do people think it could have an effect on employers? Sure. Um, so there, I guess there's a, a narrow explanation and a broader one. The narrow one is even though the ruling itself, as you say, largely discusses 
admissions in colleges and universities, uh, Justice Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, um, does allude to the possibility that this same logic can be and may be uh, extended in the workplace going forward. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's evidence that this um, this is not limited to just college admissions, at least in the minds of, of many justices. But I think more broadly, um, after the uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, a lot of businesses and a lot of other institutions really rethought their diversity uh, and inclusion policies and their affirmative action policies and took a, you know, took a pretty hard look at whether they were achieving their goals. And when they felt they were falling short, many, um, you know, added more ambitious policies. Uh, and I think there's a sense in the legal community um, uh, and certainly on the right side of the political spectrum that some of those efforts might have gone too far. And with this decision, the court is saying kind of broadly that um, affirmative action policies need to be on firm legal ground. Um, they can't um, violate the nation's uh, civil rights laws. Uh, which generally, but with some exceptions, preclude race-based hiring and promotion uh, decisions. And so, yeah, I think there's just a kind of broader broader reappraisal that's been going on. And the court's decision adds a little more fuel, a little more momentum to that reappraisal um, after this, this expansion of diversity policies after the death of George Floyd. And when you say that some companies are wondering if they may have gone too far with DEI programs, what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, well, I think uh, Richard could speak to this much better than I can. But under um, under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, under Title VII, which is the relevant statute, um, employers uh, are generally prohibited from making race-based hiring and promotion decisions. But there are some important exceptions. Um, and those exceptions generally have to do with whether you have a kind of specific documented history of discrimination uh, at your company. And if you do, you can uh, create, set up, enact an affirmative action policy that essentially corrects for that history of discrimination. Uh, and the further the further that you get from a kind of uh, trying to resolve a specific history of discrimination, the shakier the legal ground gets. And I think at some point, um, some companies in the past few years were setting up policies like. Uh, you know, an internship that was specifically intended for members of certain minority groups or a leadership training or a leadership acceleration program that was only open to certain members of specific minority groups. And if those programs came about not in response to a kind of specific history or pattern of discrimination at that company, or or maybe at least within the industry, then they may be a bit shakier under, under mm. the civil rights law. So I think uh, a lot of the discussion among among lawyers, among diversity experts, uh, you know, after that initial wave of uh, of more ambitious policies in 2020, has been, you know, what's what's the legal standard? Where are you on solid ground? Where are you on shaky ground? And certainly after the Supreme Court ruling, there's there's an even more, uh, you know, a more exhaustive reappraisal of, of where the the, the the line is and how to get on the right side of it. And, and Richard Thompson, for what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, employers weren't supposed to be considering race in hiring already, right? So how is it that these DEI programs and other efforts to bring more diversity to the workforce have thrived? Well, 
it is true that employers are generally prohibited from um, discriminating because of race. However, employers are entitled to um, can have, they're entitled to have affirmative action programs to um, correct what the courts have described as a manifest imbalance in a segregated job category. And that extends beyond just the employer's own history of discrimination, but it also encompasses discriminatory practices that may have affected the pipeline of employees that the, um, or candidates that the employer is able to consider. What's an so example of instance, that? Well, yeah, so for, for instance, in some early cases, an employer, um, a unionized employer was receiving um, candidates from the union, but the union had a history of discrimination or the union was racially segregated. Or, for instance, in a skilled trade where um, opportunities to learn that skilled trade through mentoring and um, apprenticeships had been racially exclusive. So the employer itself wasn't discriminating, but the pipeline was affected by racial discrimination. The employer was entitled to have, um, you know, an overt affirmative action policy in order to correct for that. Um, so that logic could extend to uh, contemporary employers in fields that are historically, uh, you know, underrepresent have, have underrepresentation for certain groups. Now, I could go on to say that most employers weren't engaged in that form of affirmative action. Uh, there, there are exceptions, but most of the uh, diversity hiring and most of the DEI programs are really of a type to ensure that the employers are not channeling bias or um, discrimination that's happening in other parts of the economy and to ensure that their own practices are not affected by, for instance, subconscious bias, which can be very difficult to detect in individual cases, but you can identify by looking at the results of your hiring practices. And Nicole Sanchez, um, of course, you know, part of that issue is the pipeline and making sure that you have a diverse pool of applicants. How do you think this affirmative action decision could affect that? I think that the first thing I want to say is that my premise doesn't come from a legal one. Um, as a DEI practitioner for 30 years, long before we called it that, I see affirmative action policies and equal employment opportunity, uh, EEOC reporting as the floor. The bar is very, very low inside a modern company to clear that bar and be compliant. I'm interested in what's at the top, which is how do we purposefully build a company that is racially diverse because this is a better way and place to work for all kinds of people. So I'm looking at the aspirational parts. I'm the person that they call in when they want to do that. And so where this is going to be affected is if you've got a company that is already reacting, for example, to the events of three summers ago. And I do believe a ton of this is as a result of the actions of many black and brown folks three summers ago. If you are a company that is still frightened by what you saw, doesn't want that to happen again, you didn't quite know what to make of it or how to leverage it uh, at the time, I, I am experiencing companies leaning on the law to say, well, we, well, we see, we can't even do this anymore. Mm. And that's a cop out because that is not the use of the law. That is not the proper use of the law. There's so much distance between what you can do and what you, you know, what the law says you can do. Mm. And so this idea of overcorrection is one that I've heard, you know, it comes around every five to 10 years as a cycle. It's like, 
oh no, white people, we've given up way too much at this point. How do we get some of that back? Yeah. And then they're the swing back. And that's what I experience <laughs> inside these companies. Well, and you talked about sort of the aspirational nature of DEI programs. And part of that too is creating a culture in the workplace, not just to hire folks who are diverse, but to keep them uh, by, as you suggested, making the kind of workplace that a diverse cross-section of people want to work in and are able to thrive in, right? And I would think, well, I'll ask, is, do you think this decision should affect that at all? Well, it shouldn't, but it will. And so here's how that works. So I am 50 years old. When I hit college, I, I went to Stanford in 1990. We were experiencing the first backlash of, after a generation of affirmative action. And so as a brown kid walking on campus, the the specter of affirmative action goes with black and brown folks wherever they go, wherever we go. And so the question becomes, and the parlance becomes, oh, the bar was lowered for you to be here. Meaning the white kids generally are all actually smart and those who are not white are here based on something else. And as a person who comes into that, it can be a workplace, it can be a university, as a person who comes into that, regardless of what the law says, the sentiment is with you in every classroom, every workplace, every conference room, where you are consistently day in and day out. And this is, you know, there's some really great research about this um, out of UC Hastings. You are constantly having to prove that you belong there every single day, having questions and opinions, you know, uh, having your presence questioned and your opinions have to be proven over and over again. This is the drag that's on the system. So you can be a genius and walk into a place and you are still carrying this, the zeitgeist of how um, white America feels about affirmative action on your back as you mm. come in. That's where the culture falls apart. And that's the thing we try and get in on so that people can actually be happy about the diversity that's around them and understand the benefit of it rather than thinking this is a zero sum game and black guy sitting next to me, you took a spot from a white person. And that's what this decision actually does and why it makes my job harder. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that is something that many women have noted for years, regardless of color, that, uh, you know, there's a higher bar for women. Women have always often feel that they have to go the extra length just to prove that they're equal with men. And, and of course, that applies to people of color as well. All right. We're going to continue this conversation and the potential impact and fallout of the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, how it could affect the workplace. And we'd love to hear from you. Um, and, you know, if employers do pull back on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, how will that affect you and your workplace? And do you wish employers could be more race conscious in hiring or other programs? Or do you think that they should be race neutral? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or you can find us on social media. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim, we're talking about diversity in the workplace and how it could be affected by the Supreme Court's decision last month striking down affirmative action in college admissions. We're joined by Noam Scheiber, a reporter who covers workers and the workplace for The New York Times, Richard Thompson Ford, a professor at Stanford Law School, and Nicole Sanchez, founder and CEO of Via Consulting. They advise tech and media companies on issues related to diversity and culture. Um, Noam, let me ask you, um, it's still early, of course, but you know, what are you hearing about how companies are thinking about changing their workplace policies as a result of all this? Uh, good, good question. Um, I think we've seen a, a couple of different approaches. Um, uh, certainly law firms that uh, advise these companies, a, a number of them, even um, after the court took the case long before it decided the affirmative action in admissions case, were advising their clients to review their policies, to make sure they were on firm ground. If the policies, um, if they had ambitious affirmative action policies that were not in response to some, uh, you know, some some history or concrete um, uh, wrong that created a, a, an issue for people of color, then that they should try to put them on firmer legal ground. Um, so I think uh, many law firms <laughs> were 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 um, kind of jumping up and down on this for for many months. Um, you know, since the 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 decision has come down. We've heard mixed things from um, from corporations themselves. Um, we reached out to a number um, who've had uh, you know challenges to their affirmative action policies. Some from um, kind of uh, right right wing groups that have uh, proclaimed them to be illegal. Um, and some of the employers um, told us that they felt that their policies were perfectly sound um, and, and well considered, and they plan to continue with them. Starbucks told us this. Uh, the drug maker Novartis um, has certain policies when it um, uh, retains law firms, outside law firms for legal work, um, that they need certain diversity criteria. And they said they were planning to continue with that. They felt that it was on very solid ground. Um, a lot of other employers have not responded at all. Um, and you do sense that there's this kind of, uh, in many workplaces, many corporations, at least a kind of quiet reappraisal of whether they're on solid ground. Um, I did mention some of these, um, uh, these, actions by um, by people on the right. Um, there have been a, a handful of groups, you know, some kind of uh, conservative free market groups. One was set up by Stephen Miller, the former Trump White House advisor. Um, they um, have sent, uh, some of these groups have either sent the employers themselves demand letters uh, insisting that they cease certain policies that the groups deem to be illegal under civil rights law. Or um, in the case of Stephen Miller's group, they've sent letters to the EEOC requesting an investigation of these policies. Mm. Um, and so we have that kind of percolating in the background. Those groups tend to believe that the court's decision will give them more momentum, that it'll, um, it'll bring more plaintiffs um, in, into the fold. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll kind of have to see, yeah. see how it plays out. Well, and I could see that would have a, just a letter like that would have a chilling effect, maybe not so much on a company like Apple, but maybe a smaller company with uh, you know less deep pockets to uh, go to court and defend themselves if it came to that. But um, Richard Thompson Ford, I think it was Nicole Sanchez who said earlier that using the affirmative action decision to kind of scale back some of these programs was like would be a cop out. Um, do you see it that way? 
Yeah, well, I do in many ways. Now, I, I for a few reasons. One is the opinion it did not address employment at all. I mean, it's important to note that this was an opinion that based on an entirely different set of laws, it did not address federal law with respect to employment. Now, you did have Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion that uh, opined about, uh, you know, again, a very different set of legal arguments involving um, federal statutes, Title VI in particular, which applies, has historically applied the equal protection analysis to universities, um, and said a little bit about Title VII. But it's important to note that that opinion's not law. Um, there were two justices who signed on to that opinion, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas. Uh, you need five uh, for <laughs> this to, to, to account as law. So that's just not law. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I could go on to say that a lot of the things that employers have done with respect to uh, diversity, equity and inclusion are not racial preferences. They're not race discrimination. They're attempts to correct for um, biases and potentially discriminatory policies that have been um, keeping the number of underrepresented groups down. So some of these conservative legal groups are really way out ahead of the law in terms of what they're proposing is unlawful. They're saying what they would like to be unlawful, but there's just nothing in the um, current state of the law that suggests that these programs um, are unlawful. Yeah. We're talking about the recent affirmative action decision and potential impact on the workplace. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, the number 866-733-6786. Or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org or find us on social media. We're at KQED Forum. Um, let me ask you, Nicole, uh, you know, some of these companies may feel like they're now in a bit of a tough spot. You know, they're being pushed and pulled from different directions. Um, what do you tell them? I tell them that they're not. <laughs> they're not in a, in a tough spot. <laughs> uh, and I explain a lot of what, you know, my fellow guests have said is that, you know, this has not touched workplaces. I think you're actually afraid of something else. Let's unpack that. Let's talk about what you're actually trying to have happen at your company. And then to be perfectly honest, those who are going to hide behind this will never call me. You know, they're, they're not the ones who are proactively looking for DEI experts to come in to help them debug their hiring system, like pulling bias out of selections and 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 interviewing. And so um, I, I just tell I dispel a lot of myths when I'm talking to them about anything having to do with affirmative action and EEOC. And it's important to note that not every employer is beholden to affirmative action policies and reporting to EEOC. You have to meet certain criteria in terms of being a, a certain size or a federal contractor. And so anybody who thinks that this is a blanket statement that that would apply to a you know 50 person tech startup is just kind of following the zeitgeist that's probably being, you know, along with their own belief system hmm. is the way that I'd say it. And yeah. so I just have to dispel a lot of myths and rumors. Yeah. Um, and, and Richard, you know, this particular uh, legal challenge, I think, and others recent ones as well to affirmative action have come from Asian American plaintiffs, where in the past, a lot of those were from white you know, applicants, um, thinking like the Baki decision back in the whatever it was, 70s or 80s involving, I think, the UC Davis Medical School. I might be misremembering yes, that. That's correct. Yeah. But, you know, uh, what implication, what, what's the importance, if any, of this kind of, you know, maybe a change in legal strategy? 
Well, I think it certainly changes the optics of the challenges to affirmative action in higher education, because, of course, Asian Americans are another a group that has suffered terrible race discrimination in our society. Um, so in that sense, you know, the plaintiffs may appear to be more sympathetic. Um, I, you know, I would note that two things. One is one has to look at the specific context in question in order to assess whether or not a group is um, likely a victim of discrimination. Um, and while Asian Americans have been targets of discrimination in a lot of areas, uh, you know, they are dramatically overrepresented in higher ed. So that, you know, that's one piece of data. Um, but in an employment context, you know, it's going to depend on the nature of the workplace and the nature of the uh, employment market. Uh, going to be one last thing about that. Uh, Asian Americans in higher ed, even, uh, they may well have been subject to certain forms of discrimination. When you look at the Harvard case, a lot of different policies are involved. There's affirmative action, which everyone acknowledges considers race. But then there are things like um, the subjective evaluations of students. Could those have reflected unconscious racial bias? Sure, it's possible. Um, the trial court found that that hadn't been established, but that's something that's plausible. Um, uh, uh, things like uh, preferences for alumni, um, preferences for big donors, those definitely have a racial impact, and that racial impact has been demonstrated to disadvantage Asian Americans as a group. Um, it's not clear that that's unlawful, uh, although now these kind of policies are being challenged as well. So you get some complexities hmm. that were kind of lumped together with affirmative action in that litigation. And I do think that that was a conscious strategy to kind of muddy the waters about an issue that um, that, that is more clear than it seems. Yeah. All right, let's go to the phones. And again, the number, if you want to join us, is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Before I bring our listeners in, let me just read some listener comments. Rob writes, can a business prefer hiring a black employee not for reasons of past discrimination, but for valid business reasons, for example, a black employee would know better how to market a product to black consumers. Um, I guess maybe Richard, you want to take that one? Yeah, you know, the employer is would be on shaky ground adopting that as the rationale if they're looking only at race and race alone. So, for instance, if the employer is saying, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about whether this employee is, in fact, likely to be able to market better to a particular community. I'm just going to assume that because the employee is black. That's a problem under um, under under the law. In the same way, it's a problem to make decisions based on race that are justified by stereotypes in any context. Now, on the other hand, if there's you know actual reason to believe that this employee has knowledge, information, um, cultural sophistication that's relevant to the business, and those things are a result of their experience as a person of color, um, and that's done on an individualized basis, the employer's on perfectly solid legal ground to consider that. Hmm. Sounds like they need lawyer, some good lawyers to advise them on how to, <laughs> you know, in a, in a way, practice defensive uh, HR. Yes, I think that's right. All right, let's go to the phones, and we're going to go to Redwood City first. And Lindy, welcome. Good morning. And turn your radio down if you would. I think uh, might be causing a bit of a delay. Okay, is, is that is that better? Yeah, go for it. 
So I just wanted to make the point, all your points are really good, and I'm a big supporter of diversity and inclusion, but I think one of the points that I've not heard made that I think is really important is that because society is becoming so much more diverse, that if you work for a company of all white people and you're serving a, a very a very diverse population of people of color, of a variety of colors, then you're not going to be able to be competitive in that marketplace. So just from a competitive perspective, you will be much more competitive if you have a much more diverse population of employees. Yeah. Well, and in fact, here in the Bay Area, no matter what your business is, you're probably going to be serving or potentially serving a, a very diverse population. But Nicole Sanchez, what are your thoughts about Lindy's point? Well, it, it is a point that we use and we call this the business case for diversity. It's got a, it's a double-edged sword, though, because on the one hand, Lindy's absolutely right. Diverse teams that are managed in psychological safety and clarity of goals and a handful of other things are will outperform hom- more homogenous groups every single time. The, the, the downside of this is that what we then end up doing as practitioners is making the case that having people of color can make you more money, which is a there's a very slippery slope in saying, look at what you can get from doing the right thing is it's um, there's some cognitive dissonance in it when you actually put it into practice, even though it's actually accurate. Yeah. And, and Noam Scheiber, is that something that, you know, a lot of companies, at least maybe here in California, it's different than, you know, Kansas or Missouri, but that they've internalized that idea that a diverse workplace is just inherently a good thing or not so much? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, when you talk to employers, they will tell you, you know, you, you frequently hear the mantra that they both uh, want to do the right thing and that doing the right thing actually makes business sense. Um, you hear that frequently. Um, you know, I, I think that um, just to the point about um, where, you know, whether you should be concerned and whether you should practice defense of HR, I think Nicole made a version of this point, and I, I think it's the right point that um, even with these lawsuits percolating and with, uh, you know, the Supreme Court kind of uh, sending a signal that uh, workplace affirmative action diversity policies might be scrutinized next, as a practical matter, companies still face far more discrimination claims from people of color and, and from women um, who argue often credibly that they've been discriminated against then from um, you know, than from from white men who say they've suffered reverse discrimination. So um, I think this is a practical matter. We can probably overstate the extent to which these policies are actually, um, you know, risking embroiling employers in um, in discrimination. That is to say, um, overly ambitious, overly aggressive diversity policies. Uh, when in fact, you know, the the vast majority of EEOC claims we see are still uh, from people of color. Um, who argue, again, often credibly, that they've been discriminated against. Yeah. All right, Lindy, thanks very much for the call. Uh, Curtis writes, it's no surprise to any person of color that discrimination in the workplace has been well institutionalized, even with the existing affirmative action laws. In fact, the push by companies to step up their engagement with minorities in hiring and promotion exposed where they felt they had deficiencies from a legal perspective. With the Supreme Court decision, unfortunately, we have regressed. Um, Richard Thompson Ford, of course, voters... in California, leave out the Supreme Court, voters in 1996 uh, passed Prop 209, which, you know, uh, made affirmative action illegal in higher ed. And Prop 16, more recently, 2020, would have undone that ban on affirmative action. And that was rejected, 57 percent no vote in that uh, in that case. Um, And so I'm wondering if there are things here in California that we have learned uh, in adapting to you know, basically now what is law of the land that might be useful in other places? 
Well, I yes, I think that we have learned some things in the higher ed context. It's very clear that the um, UCs have spent a lot of time and effort in figuring out how to make sure their selection processes are fair and unbiased and you know, produce um, diverse student bodies without considering race per se. So those lessons can be brought into other areas. I do think we've also learned, though, that um, it's very difficult to get a diverse um, group without considering race. It took a lot of effort. And so, you know, I don't want to pretend that you could just work around this ban on affirmative action in the higher ed context. And if it were to come to employment, I think it would be a big problem. Um, now, one of the, the main reason for that is that the biases that continue to affect our decision-making processes, whether we're talking about higher ed or employment, are increasingly hard to identify. And so employment discrimination law, um, and I think um, Nicole mentioned this, is, is a low bar. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to prove discrimination. And so if, if, these biases continue despite the fact that we have laws that formally speaking, prohibit them. So the employers need to be somewhat proactive. And the main way that you can be proactive is to think about race, is to think about how you can correct these biases. So if the court says you can't think about race, it is a real impediment to achieving the promise of racial equality that our civil rights laws have been designed to um, help us achieve. We're coming up on a break, but Noam, quickly, um, we talked. Somebody mentioned uh, Stephen Miller, the former uh, aide to Trump, who is uh, pushing a lot of these conservative lawsuits. Who's funding them? Do we know that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I honestly haven't looked into it, but um, um, it, you know, it, it, there are. There's obviously a whole constellation of of kind of super PACs and yeah. nonprofit groups that raise money from, you know, <laughs> from a yeah, similar network. That, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they don't have to, they election. don't even have to report, yeah. report it in this case, because it's not a, a campaign related issue, at least not directly. All right. We're going to continue this conversation about the impact of the recent affirmative action decision on employers and workplaces. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. If you'd like to weigh in with a question or comment, again, it's 866-733-6786. 86, or you can send us an email. We're forum at kqed.org, or of course, we're on social media Twitter, Facebook. I don't know if we're on threads yet. Uh, but anyway, we're at KQED Forum, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. In for Mina Kim today, we're talking about the impact of last month's Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, what it could mean for workplace diversity and corporate DEI programs. Joining us for the full hour, Noam Scheiber, a reporter who covers these issues for The New York Times. Also, Richard Thompson Ford. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. And Nicole Sanchez, founder and CEO of Via Consulting. They advise tech and media companies on issues related to diversity and culture. And if you'd like to Join us. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. And let's go next to San Mateo. AJ, welcome. Thank you for taking my call. Can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Um, So I think the Supreme Court decision uh, related to the higher education, uh, I feel it's quite myopic because one of the purposes of higher education, it generally being the last step before people become employable, was always to level the playing field. Um, and this robs the higher education uh, institutions an opportunity to level the playing field for people who came from disadvantaged backgrounds. On the other hand, I do think that eventually this is going to change the mix of uh, talented pipeline of people that enter the workforce and it's gonna make it easier for many employers not to be diverse. Yeah, um, because they can they can blame the the incoming pipeline. That said, I think um, I think there's a nuance over here. I think you know, a higher education being being the place where you can level the playing field, it's kind of okay to tilt the scales um, and and aim for diversity. Whereas in the workplace, the way to aim for diversity, in my mind, is actually to remove bias which is different from trying to aim from diversity. Uh, and this goes back to one of you know, your, the comments that you read where someone asked, hey, can I hire a black person because I'm assuming that they'll be good at marketing uh, to black people, whereas you know, the goal should have been, I'm going to find the best person yeah. to, to, to achieve that goal. Yeah. And so these are two different, two different places, two different contexts with two different goals um, and, and not mix them. And then I have a question for, you, for, for your panel which is, do, do you think, uh, does the panel think that the, when you interpret the, the decision, whether it's going to be illegal or practically impossible for higher education institutions to meet their diversity yeah. goals? Yeah, that's a good question. Given, given and, this decision. Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned, California has been dealing with this for decades. Um, Richard Thompson Ford, what are your thoughts? And, and, and to AJ's point that this is you know, going to eliminate the ability of employers to level the playing field, uh, it sounds like from earlier comments from several of you that that's not necessarily the case, that there are sort of ways around the decision, if, if that's the right way to say it. Well, there are two issues. I, this opinion does not apply to employment. So the ability of employers to um, you know, promote diversity and have DEI efforts has not been affected. On the other hand, when we're talking about the pipeline and what we might expect in um, a few years, then I agree that it's a problem. 
uh, that we would expect to see a lower number of historically underrepresented groups as a result of this decision. Now, how much depends on how universities react. And I do believe that there's room, even in this opinion, for universities to continue to advance their goals for equity and inclusion, um, which include continuing to reassess their selection criterion for um, unconscious bias and for uh, what we lawyers call disparate impact, meaning things that you know, screen out a disproportionate number of underrepresented groups. And I think a lot of universities are looking very closely at all of their selection criteria, everything from standardized tests to which high schools they prefer based on reputation to things like the legacy preferences and, and preferences for certain types of sports that may, um, may, may promote racial bias. So there, there, there is room. Um, and I, I wouldn't want people to be defeatist or to use this opinion as an excuse to just give up. Yeah. At the same time, the opinion will make it harder for universities to level the playing field, and it will most likely result in a significant decrease in underrepresented groups coming out of these universities and therefore a you know less diverse pipeline. Hmm. AJ, thanks very much for your comments. Um, Nicole, I'm wondering, you know, how do you feel or how do companies feel that the DEI efforts that they've made in the past few years are working? Well, I'd say it's a mixed bag because those that are staying committed even through the hard times are seeing the results and way too many companies give up the minute it feels uncomfortable. And so I have a lot of hope in some of some of my clients who are doing really amazing things in their spaces and their, their products and their performance um, matches. I think um, there's just a lot of fear. I, I think that there are a lot of folks in leadership positions of all kinds who are white and do not even know how to start talking about this. Therefore, anything to allow us to stop talking about it is preferable to trying to figure out the nuances of it. So it's just a mixed bag, I would say. But I'd like to add something about the, the point of the pipeline, if I may. Sure. Um, how this is going to affect the pipeline. I think one of the things that we're not paying attention to in a macro sense is the devaluing of college education overall as we make it less accessible. So partner this decision with decisions around student loan and the kind of debt that people are graduating with, the lack of ability to actually access you know, some of these schools due to lots of things. And what we're seeing is people carving out, Gen Z is carving out way more paths around college educations to become employable without the systems to support them. And so one of the greatest things that we were able to do, especially in, in media and tech, is that we were able to say, what if we don't care about a college education at all? What if we say, if you can demonstrate these skills, however you acquired these skills, we will look at your candidacy. And in removing that as a requirement, diversity, the success around diversity has gone through the roof in, you know, across the board when you remove some of these less relevant qualifications. Yeah, interesting. And, and you know, there's an article in the New York Times a few weeks or months ago now about how some employers have uh, sort of pivoted a little bit with their DEI programs, and they're now using a phrase like diversity and belonging, which is a way, I think, uh, at least in, in the case of that article, to make white people feel more comfortable, you know, that they that this is not something that they're, this, these programs are not, quote unquote, out to get them, you know, but, yeah. but, but yeah. to, uh, you know, the, to, to give them a stake in the policy. 
Oh, that's absolutely accurate. And I think a lot, and I don't use it <laughs> in part because it's a, it's a hard thing to measure belonging inclusion to me, the I of DEI does the work. I think there's also an inclination for people to put a J in there and call it Jedi now is another thing that's coming, mm-hmm. coming out of probably tech, you know, where you put justice and, and I won't do it because I just don't think capitalism has room for justice. And so what we're really talking about is diversity Equity, meaning let's make this fair, and inclusion, meaning we're looking at everybody in the entire pool and and making sure that this is a place where people can do work without the drag of consistently being reminded, you're our transgender employee, right? So that's that's the actual work day to day. Yeah. Noam, what do you hear from employers in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know th- we've heard a couple comments in the hour that, you know, they'd love nothing better than an excuse to kind of pivot away and stop talking about diversity and race and so on. Uh, do you think that's, you know, is that reflected in what you're hearing? I think it really varies. It's hard to generalize. I yeah. mean, there there are certain employers, you know, Starbucks would be one that has a, a progressive <laughs> brand reputation. Their uh, their customer base, you know, very large, but probably skews a bit liberal. And so it's important for them to both lay out um, diversity goals and to, to at least try to make progress on them. Um, you have other companies, obviously, that, um, that have a, a different demographic, different customer base. So I, I think it's, I think it's hard to generalize. I mean, one one point that I would make, and I think Richard alluded to this too, and the caller asking about um, the, the the college admission decision is, well, well it, it may be the case that um, the pipeline is crimped by this decision because you'll just have fewer um, people of color graduating from certain universities. Um, it, it is the case that companies can and will well into the future be able to do a number of things to offset that pipeline issue. For example, they can um, very overtly recruit on certain campuses, you know, historically black colleges and universities. Um, they can advertise more aggressively on those campuses. They can do things to make sure um, that even as there are forces that narrow the pipeline, that they are pushing back on that and expanding it. And those things are perfectly legal under the civil rights law, and they will continue to be legal. Uh, it's very hard to imagine a future Supreme Court reigning that piece of it in. So there remain a lot of these tools, even as certain things um, seem to contract the pipeline. There are other ways to expand it. And, and Richard Thompson Ford, it seems like in some ways the next frontier is legacy admissions to colleges. In fact, I think there was a group that uh, filed a lawsuit. I don't know the details, but I'm sure you do, um, aiming at that very thing, that the, that those legacy policies are discriminatory. Uh, that's right. Now, the, um, the, the, the lawsuit that you're referring to was a complaint with the Department of Education that the legacy admissions had a unlawful disparate impact on the basis of race. Um, There's some complicated legal reasons why these aren't lawsuits being filed in federal court, but they have to go through the Department of Education. But I do think that that's one of the new frontiers. And I think that there'll be others, both in the form of Department of Education investigations into various policies that have a disparate impact, because legacies are just the most conspicuous. If you look at certain of the recruiting um, priorities for certain sports, um, I mean, really, other than football and basketball, recruiting for sports in selective universities uh, favors white applicants. So there's a category. Um, there's also you know, many schools are reassessing the 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 heavy use of standardized testing um, and instead 
looking at standardized testing as it was historically intended to be used as a floor for competence, but not as something where you rank people when they're above the floor. All of these practices have a disparate impact. And I think that the universities are voluntarily going to start to look at these, but there'll also be pressure to look at them from um, the civil rights perspective. Yeah. And I think uh, Justice Gorsuch, although he was part of the 6-3 majority in the affirmative action case, explicitly said that there's no question that legacy policies benefit white and wealthy uh, applicants. That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, you're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. We're talking about affirmative action and uh, its impact potentially on on the uh, on the workplace. We're talking with uh, Noam Scheiber, Nicole Sanchez, and Richard Thompson Ford uh, with the Stanford Law School. Again, I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. And let's go back to the phones. And uh, why don't we go to uh, Los Altos? And Eric, you're next. Welcome. Hi. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Yeah, I'm wondering how, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley, and I'm wondering how DEI would play into, you know, the tech industry. When you see, uh, as you know, many tech CEOs are people of color, and different tech companies are uh, not disproportionately white. You know, they're actually disproportionately uh, Asian. And then what you also find is within particular companies, you'll find, you know, like hires like, so you'll get people from particular countries or regions. Um, so you end up with something that is not this traditional paradigm. You've mentioned you know, several times the idea of you know, white people um, you know, giving up rights. Uh, but I think you end up with this composition that's quite different from this model that we've been talking about. I'm wondering how that plays in with DAI and the hmm. overall goal of diversity. Yeah, Nicole Sanchez, you, you work with a lot of tech companies. Yeah, I love this question because it, it allows me to say, first of all, I think we've been using Asian, you know, a couple of times just as this broad swath and <laughs> Asian folks are consistently used as the scapegoats for any of this conversation because the numbers just don't match. We say people of color, but then sometimes we exclude Asian folks. We say people of color, sometimes we include. And so we have to really disaggregate who we mean when we're talking about Asian folks. And the your country of origin within that giant category has a huge corollary um, has a huge correlation to what your life trajectory is going to be like. So to say Vietnamese, Laotian, Cambodian, Hmong folks, their trajectories in terms of education, life expectancy, and how much money they'll earn over the course of a lifetime looks more like the Latino community, right? And then folks from South Asia, India, uh, Pakistan, often then China, Japan, Korea, those look more like white trajectories. Okay, so we're already conflating to like, well, a massive continent, but we're, we scapegoat Asian folks on this. The phenomenon that the caller's talking about is something that we see in Silicon Valley and we predominantly see within the Indian community, okay, Indian expat community. And it is a very interesting phenomenon because what is happening is folks are coming from India and establishing companies and then hiring their community to build this company. That makes sense. Hmm. That makes sense that you would hire fellow immigrants and people from your home country. So what does this mean? And the, there's a big question over it, but it's a very rich conversation in the Asian community about how do we want to be represented in this conversation? Yeah. Well, and, you know, it, of course, sometimes Asian community is lumped into is like like it's one community. That's of course, right. There are many, <laughs> many, right. many different Asian communities, as well as Latino communities and black communities, for that matter. Uh, Eric, uh, does that respond to your, your point? Yeah, that that uh, is very helpful. I mean, 
I think that yeah, I think the whole category of Asian is it's the majority of people in the world are Asian, right? So lumping them into a single race. <laughs> Correct. Is yeah, there's right. That. That's right. Yeah. So that's that's right. Is, this goal of new diversity is just, as you said, people without any insidious motives, you know, just hire, want to hire people that they're, com- they're comfortable with. Hmm. Well, comfortable with is a loaded with- phrase. <laughs> right. Yeah, if I could just jump in. Yeah, really yeah, please. Quickly. It's, um, it is perfectly understandable that people, you know, the, the like, hires like phenomenon. And I agree with you that it doesn't reflect racial animus. Um, I do have to point out that it is unlawful. Uh, it, it, for any employer covered under civil rights law, it's just not okay to prefer people of a particular race just because you're more comfortable with them. And you know this has been a, one of the ways that workplaces have remained segregated historically since the you know passage of the civil rights laws. Yeah. All right, Eric, thanks very much for that. Uh, Here's a comment from Barry. Clearly, there is discrimination and biases against minorities. These are factors in admissions and hiring, but the reality of achievement gaps, the chronic absenteeism, disparities of different racial groups can represent a pipeline of potential hires, students that does not reflect the diverse population. Isn't the issue really getting the academic achievement gap closed? Um, Noam Scheiber, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think obviously these things are entangled in very complicated ways. Um, and, you know, I think that's why the, the initial premise um, that this uh, ruling reverberates both through uh, academia and through the job market is, is, is probably uh, on point. Um, you know, I, I will say that on some level, you know, employers often say, like, what can I do? You know, the pipeline just wasn't there. And that's a bit of a cop out, you know, because there are things they can do. Um, you know, th- there's obviously an extent to which that's true. There, there are social problems that arise, you know, years before a candidate comes to apply for a job. But I would just stress that um, typically um, when an employer says that, what can I do? The pipeline isn't there. There probably is a bit more they can do, you know, so unless that employer is like maxed out on you know, on the various recruitment efforts, on on advertising, on visit, visiting certain campuses, on mentoring, on training, then they, you know, while these um, these societal societal issues that affect the pipeline long before a candidate goes to apply for a job there, it, it, it's certainly a thing and it's certainly a barrier. Um, un- unless they're maxed out on the things they can't control, they, they probably should, should start with that first. Yeah, no, exactly. And then, of course, the culture of the company and the workplace uh, making it a, a good place to work for folks that you're trying to attract. All right, great conversation. Thank you all very much. Noam Scheiber from the New York Times, Nicole Sanchez, founder and CEO of Via Consulting, and Richard Thompson Ford, professor of law at Stanford Law. Thank you all very much. And thanks, of course, to our listeners uh, for your comments and questions. I'm Scott Schaefer in today for Mina Kim. I'll see you tomorrow. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.